Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Joe Fortunato. I am your host for today's fantastic episode of Bantering the Blue Shirts. We had a slight change in uh, personnel. Mike was not feeling very good. So we, we bring on Beth Macklin, who was kind enough to jump into the fray for uh, 15 minutes before we're going to have Jimmy Ritzner, who is the managing editor of Pennsburg, SB Nation's Pittsburgh Penguins affiliate, is going to come on and uh, give us a quick little chat and rundown about what's going on with the Penguins. So in Mike's absence, Beth will be joining us. Beth, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks. She is uh, in the, the basement of her daughter's dance studio, so we'll uh, if we hear any screams, we'll know that we have to alert the authorities for wherever she is. But uh, I guess the... Speaking of things that are kind of scary, the playoffs have finally matured enough that we know who's playing who, something that didn't happen until the very end of the regular season. The New York Rangers will be taking on the Pittsburgh Penguins, as you know, for the third year in a row. The New York Islanders did a wonderful tank job their final two games of the year and will play Florida getting out of the Metro bracket and moving into the the Atlantic Division bracket. Uh, So, Beth, I guess the very first question that I have for you is, and I think this is more of a flaw of the playoff system as it is, so you don't want to play the Penguins, obviously, because they're one of the hottest teams in the league right now, and it's scary, but it's also kind of boring to face the same team over and over again, no? Yeah, I mean, it's true. It's, It's really all the worst things that can be. It's boring, it's dangerous, and they want us dead. We have sent them home a couple of years in a row now. And so this isn't really a matchup that we wanted for any reason at all. There's nothing in this for us and, uh, all, you know, except a possible win. But um, we can talk about that a little bit later. But, yeah, it's not – it's like a really sort of possible, long, boring, horrible murder, actually. So we'll see. And it, it certainly – it comes at – you know, three years is a long time in hockey. If you think back to what that 2014 series was with Martin St. Louis' mother passing away and the Rangers coming back for a 3-1 deficit for the first time in their history, they, they ended up doing it again against the Washington Capitals last year, becoming the first team in NHL history to do it two years in a row. Um, you just think about where the Rangers have a, what they've turned into from 2014 to now and it certainly looks like the Rangers have gotten quite a bit worse than they were in uh, 2014. It looks like the Penguins have gotten quite a bit better from where they were last year. And it sort of has spiraled into this seemingly disaster matchup, especially with the injuries the New York Rangers are facing, mainly Ryan McDonough being out of the lineup. Looks like a few guys are probably playing with bumps and bruises. Eric Stahl was kept out for precautionary reasons for the end of the Red Wings game. He's okay. Dan Girardi was injured. He's going to come back in for the first round of the, or for the first game of the playoffs. So there's a few different factors there, and the Penguins seem to be maybe all healthy outside of Evgeny Malkin. It looks like Mark Andre Fleury might actually be between the pipes uh, for Game One. Looks like everything is kind of working out to be uh, a pretty healthy Penguins team, which you didn't think was the case when it looked like they might start their third string goaltender. Um, so what we've kind of talked about and what the focus has been on is what the Rangers are going to do without Ryan McDonough. And today in practice, it looked like Dan Girardi and Mark Stahl, which has been a relatively disaster pairing for the New York Rangers, seems to be the group that is going to go against the Sidney Crosby line, which is terrifying and probably not the best idea in the world. But I, I have a devil's advocate response, and that's, what do you do against the speed of Haglin and Kessel? You can't put them out against Girardi and Stahl, and you don't want to put Boyle and Shea out against really any of the top six if you can help it. So it's going to have to be Yandel and Klein handling that speed and Stahl and Girardi handling Crosby. And Beth, to me, that just seems like it's a disaster, but what can you do? I really don't think there's much we can do at this point. I mean, the thing is, we can win games without Ryan McDonough. We've done it before. Um, can we win a series again without him? I'm really not sure. But, you know, this pairing was going to happen. Stahl and Girardi together or separate were going to have to be going up against the Crosby line. And let's face it, the, the Hagelin and Kessel line gave us more trouble, I think, the last time we played them. 
significantly more trouble in terms of the speed. Um, so I agree that, you know, there was really no good matchup here that we could be completely happy with in McDonough's absence. Um, it was never going to line up perfectly right. And, again, with them getting, um, you know, last change, too, you know, we're going to get what we're going to get. Um, and we just have to kind of hope for the best. But, yeah, I completely agree that I think the reason we're focusing, or at least I was thinking about the 5-18 the and 18 matching up against Crosby today, is because you really, you know, and I posted this on Twitter, you really have to worry when fans and beat writers for another team are celebrating one of your D-pairs. Um, that's not anything that anybody wants to see. And it does say something about the, you know, the reputation that these two have now have as you know you're going to get through them you're going to get past them chances are and it's just how many times and what the cost is going to be and if Lundquist is going to be able to clean up whatever comes through because things are going to get through um, but I think you're completely right that they've got two lines that, that we really have to worry about for different reasons and speed becomes such a bigger issue in the playoffs, too, because you really are dealing with uh, a team that, if you look at what the Rangers utilized in terms of their speed game last year, you're taking Haglin away from the New York Rangers, and you're replacing them with no one in terms of the speed game. And then Haglin's going over to Pittsburgh and just contributing to their speed. In the Rangers' last matchup against the Penguins, you saw Haglin's speed be a real issue for the Rangers to deal with. And as you kind of evolve through a playoff series, we don't know when Ryan McDonough is coming back. It seems to be pretty clear that he's not going to be playing game one. I would be shocked if he came back for game two. Yesterday he was using a righty stick, and he was only holding it with one hand. Today he was using his lefty stick, and he was using both hands. So hopefully there's something positive to be said for that. But the Rangers need to worry about how they're going to handle these waves of offense that the Penguins are going to be able to provide. And that stall Girardi has to be a pairing, I think, shows how damaging this entire series of decisions the Rangers made with not adjusting their defense has been. But what else do you have? You need Klein Yandel probably is the best first pairing you can come up with from what the Rangers are working with. And Shea Boyle is probably the best third pairing you can come up with in terms of just being able to bury two players and I don't think Boyle has been as bad as people say he is, but you obviously don't want him dealing with the speed or the top minutes either. But the Rangers are going to have to figure out where to throw that grenade. And if Girardi and Stahl, who I should say, if we're going to talk about it from a negative standpoint, Mark Stahl has been much, much better the past couple of weeks than he has been all year, whether or not that's something of a fluke or if it's Mark Stahl maybe coming back into his own. I don't know. Dan Girardi's uh, fall from grace hasn't, really slowed at all. It got a little bit better. Now it's going worse again. So how is he going to be playing with yet another bump and bruise? You don't know, but I agree with you, Beth. This is very much so. The Rangers made a lot of decisions based off reputation this year, and I think that's a, an Elaine Mignot's staple to the way that he coaches, and I think it's a, a staple to the way that he manipulates his lineup, but there are going to be some issues for the Rangers one way or another, and we knew that going in. We knew the Rangers' offense had to be able to keep the uh, the ship afloat and you had to know that there was going to be at the very least some defensive breakdowns even with Ryan McDonough like the story that went up today the, the Rangers dropped 15 points this year because of late goals given up and that was with a fully healthy defense so I'm not totally sure that there was ever going to be a perfect answer but you need Lundqvist and you need the forward groups and we'll talk about this with Jimmy a little bit when he comes on but Beth between you and me the Rangers forward group really does seem to be a strength for this group. And I put up a story today about how the youth and the depth of the X factors, the Rangers have 101 points this year for all the flaws that they have, for all the issues that they have, they still put up 101 points. And yes, they've won games on the back of a very high unsustainable shooting percentage. Yes. They've won games on the back of Henrik Lundqvist, but it maybe it's improbable, but the Rangers could ride this out. Could they not? I want to believe that, you know, um, they can surprise us. They have surprised us. Uh, again, for me, the question is always, do they have a full series worth of surprise of good surprises? Um, 
but I, you know, and I agree with you completely about the offense. It's funny because I always get annoyed when I look at top scoring lists and don't see any Rangers on it. But I realize one of the reasons for that is because we have multiple people who are having, um, who have a lot of goals up there, who almost anyone up there um, is capable of scoring at any time, which, which is great, which is fantastic, which is an asset for us. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still hard. And we do have guys who come back. I mean, Nash is fantastic when he comes back, that big body all over the place. I'm terrified to think of the prospect of possibly losing him after this season, as some people are talking about. Um, but, you know, it's just, and I'm sure you'll talk about this with uh, a friend from Pennsburg. You know, we look at our, def- our defensive zone and we see a minefield, and are they looking at it and essentially seeing a whole bunch of yellow brick roads? Um, and that's kind of upsetting to uh, to think about is, yeah, if we could keep it in the offensive zone for the whole game, we're probably going to win. But we know that that's probably not going to happen. Um, and, you know, really with this team, anything can happen in the neutral zone right now. Um, they're very capable of surprising us. They are very capable of winning. Um, I'd really like to know sometime what it's like to root for a team that didn't have an equal chance of beating the best team in the league and losing to the worst one on any given night. The Rangers are always like that, regardless of injuries. Um, So, you know, going into a playoff series like this, you really got to hope for the best, and I am going to try to be optimistic. But you know what? When it comes right down to it, it's not just I think that the Pens are on fire. It's that they, you know, they feel like they want this. We've denied it to them a couple of times. We've been the thing that got in their way. So between our liabilities and their desire for revenge, uh, I think we're in a pretty tough place. Well, it's funny that you, you talk about the offense. And if I told you going into the year that the New York Rangers would have five 20-goal scorers, two 25-plus goal scorers, one of them would not be Rick Nash. One of them would not be Kevin Hayes. And if you had the foresight to know the Rangers are going to trade for Eric Stahl, one of them would not be for Eric Stahl. You would think that the Rangers were one of the elite in the league. If you're getting that much secondary scoring out of your offense, there's really a lot to be said for what you could do with that forward group, even if you did have a rocky defense, especially with Henrik Lundqvist manning the pipes. But the Rangers seem to be this team that win in spite of the uh, the advanced metrics. I, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but Vigneau uh, has a, a very good winning percentage with a team that has a Corsi, I think, below 47%. So, you know, it's not great. It's not like he's winning 90% of his games, but the New York Rangers do know how to win games with what they have. And uh, I happen to be in the camp that that is the Henrik Lundqvist make everything better cream that the Rangers can put on any game. But I also think it probably says something about the Rangers forward groups actually being one of the more dangerous groups in the NHL. I mean, look, nobody expected 27 goals out of Broussard. He had a career year. Derek Stepan had a career year. Matt Zuccarello had a career year. So did JT Miller. So Rick Nash, who was injured and maybe didn't have the impact he wanted, Eric Stahl coming in and not setting the world on fire when he came into the trade deadline, the way that the, you know, the way that the Rangers handled the Kevin Hayes and Oscar Lindbergh situation doesn't help either. But for the most part, when you look at the, the lineup up and down, the Rangers do have players who are, I'm going to say, very dangerous, who can turn the series around. And, you know, it's not ideal to have to lean on your offense, especially with a, a paper-thin defense, which is what the Rangers are looking at. But I think that it's something, there is something to be said for it might not be probable, but the Rangers do have the ability to take over a game if they have to. And there aren't many players on the New York Rangers with a positive course this year, and all the people who hate advanced stats say they still got 101 points and they still have 45-plus wins and they're still doing all this stuff, and that's great, but down the stretch, the Rangers lost a lot of games they should have won, and they're playing, again, the hottest team in the NHL. I would say hotter than the Washington Capitals right now, and as we know, there's nothing more important than being hot at the right time in the playoffs, honestly. So I'm just not sure that the Rangers are going to be able to sustain that level of play. Like you said, I'm hopeful that they're going to be able to sustain that level of play, but I'm not totally sure they're going to be able to. Uh, I know you have to run quickly, so I'll, I'll kind of put you on the spot and just get a series prediction out of you or maybe just something you want to say. You know what? I'm going to go with my optimism, um, and I am going to say if the Rangers win, 
let's believe that they are. There's no way we're getting out of this series in less than seven games. So I'm going to say Rangers in a long, bloody seven that leaves bodies strewn everywhere. Hopefully not literally. We can't afford any more injuries. Um, although I do wonder what it would take to get McElrath out there. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm going to fight the flow and say Rangers in seven. So there it is. Yeah, and on that note, are... I got to go. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for filling in for Mike. As you guys know, Mike is uh, not feeling too well. So that was Beth Macklin, who was kind enough to, to step in for 15 minutes while we await Jimmy Rixner again from Pennsburg is going to be calling in in roughly five minutes. So we do have a caller who has been waiting for 26 minutes since I'm riding solo. I will get you on the air. Area code 347. I might have to kick you when Jimmy comes on, but you are on the air. Who's this? Well, you know who it is. It's your buddy, Dan. Well, look at this, Dan. You know, you threw me for a loop for a second because you and Beth have the same area code, but um, I, I didn't know that was her waiting. But go ahead, buddy. What do you want to bring to the table today? First of all, good evening to you. I hope uh, I hope Mike gets better for soon. I uh, yeah, he's got a I, share his I feel like crap too. So you know, so so I hope Mike gets better soon. Beth just became my hero. She's pretty well, good at what she does. Absolutely, absolutely. So, let's let's drop the pleasantries. Simply put, I am a glass half full guy, and I'm I share her optimism, and I understand where you're coming from. Uh, I commented actually on this on the banter about your uh, your your post recently um, regarding the uh, re- regarding our chances. Uh, I don't have a problem with Saul and Girardi playing together. Where who they play against? It's not going to make a big deal. But soup to nuts, this is a team that is going to have to rely on its offense. That was starting to become the case during the regular season. Team, I think people forget, honestly, that this team was scoring at a clip of four and a half goals per game in the very early parts of this season. At points, it dipped down to about 3.25. It rose back up to somewhere around 3.9 and 3.65 uh, in various cases, even when we were losing games, okay? We weren't losing games 2-1. to one. There were games that we were winning that we were losing 4-3 to three or 5-4 to four in overtime during the losing period. And when this team started to get, get its act together during its wins, they were, they were winning games 3-2, 4-3, 5-4 as well. So right now this team's transitioned into a bit more of an offensive-minded team. Uh, that is a result of many different things. I think before we get ready to throw the team under the bus, I think we have to be prepared for one particular thing. This offense will show up in this series in one form or another. And I happen to go along with Beth, and I think the Rangers will win in seven. I, that's actually one of my picks uh, in the bracket challenge is that uh, – we're going to end up winning this thing in seven games. It's not going to be easy. No one's going to going to walk. No one's going to let this thing be a walk. Yeah, and you know it's funny that you, you both brought up the same kind of line of thinking that I have on this. And my opinion, if you had to ask me what's going to go on with the New York Rangers this year in the playoffs, I'm going to tell you the Rangers are either going to get bounced out in four, they're going to get swept, mm-hmm. or they're mm-hmm. going to make a deep, deep run. I just have this sense that the Rangers have kind of put together these streaks of, uh, of luck and they've relied on Henrik Lundqvist. And uh, Lane Vigneault talked a lot today about how the playoffs are basically a brand new season, how the New York Rangers are looking at this as a fresh start and how they finally got to the playoffs. And listen, the Rangers are able to sustain their really good play. And by really good play, I mean they were shooting at an unsustainable percentage and Henrik Lundqvist was making a ton of saves for sure. enough games that they could theoretically win the Stanley Cup, quote-unquote. They could do it for 20, 25 games. But it's not going to be the easiest thing in the world. It's certainly not going to be something that's going to make a, make you comfortable in, in what you're dealing with. So I'm just not totally sure that it's the best strategy for the Rangers to lean on. But by the same token, I, I don't think that they can do anything else. And that's unfortunately where we are, Mike, now, right now. Dan, I really appreciate you uh, calling in. Jimmy's on hold, so I'm going to let you go, buddy. But you should call in next time. We'll be able to give you a little bit more airtime. 
Absolutely. Have a great night, Joe. Thanks, buddy. You too. Mm -hmm. All right. And now as I unmute him, we uh, bring on Jimmy Rixner, who is the managing editor of uh, Pennsburg, SB Nation's home of the Pittsburgh Penguins and the, uh, the enemy for the next couple of weeks. Jimmy, how are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. Doing good. How are you all? Uh, we are good. Mike actually wasn't feeling well, so he, he kind of hung me solo, but that's fine. The show must go on. Uh, I promised you that there would be at least 15 minutes of crying over the Carl Haglin uh, loss and your gain, but we can save that for the end. Uh, I guess the very first thing that I wanted to ask you, because there does seem to be some conflicting reports coming out of Pittsburgh, uh, is there any update to the Marc-Andre Fleury situation, the Evgeny Malkin? It looks like you guys are actually going to be relatively healthy coming into the playoffs. Um, the Flurry's looking better. He's practiced Monday and Tuesday now, and he skated a couple of days last week. And even last week, Coach Mike Sullivan said that Flurry has been feeling better. He's been progressing. It sounds like basically, if you don't know the whole story, on March 31st in a game, James Neal, of all people, knocked Flurry's helmet off with a shot, and that seemed to jar him a little. He finished that game, but the next morning he said he wasn't feeling well, so they put him in concussion protocol. So he's been out ever since that point. But now it seems like his symptoms have gone down, and he's talked to the media, and he's, he hasn't ruled himself in, and doctors have not cleared him for tomorrow yet. But it looks like all signs are pretty much pointing to Flurry playing sooner than later. And if I was a betting man, I would say he, Flurry is probably in tomorrow night. So he gets a little bit of practice time today. It looks like they uh, kind of worked him back in a little bit. Are there any concerns from your side of the fence about – having a goaltender who hasn't been able to play for a couple of weeks, who really hasn't even been able to practice for a couple of weeks, getting thrown right into the line of duty for the first game of the playoffs, if that happens? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the number one concern I have right now, really, especially because the Penguins played their backup, Matt Murray, in the last game of the season on Saturday against the Flyers. And this kid, Murray, he was the best goalie in the AHL last year. This year he's played 13, 14 games in the NHL and has a 9.30 save percentage. Like, he looks for all the world to be a capable NHL goalie, and he got hurt in a game against the Flyers when Braden Shen ran into him. Kind of accidental, but so it goes. So the Penguins don't have anything behind Flurry, and even Flurry today said he doesn't feel sharp. He doesn't feel like he's picking up pucks. He thinks he needs more time to really control his rebound and just really get sharp, especially for playoff-style hockey. So... That's a big problem right now for Pittsburgh is even if Flurry is 100% and ready to play, is he actually going to be 100% sharp in such a critical game? By the way, I can totally believe that uh, Chris Neal would hit him in the head with his stick. I don't know why, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Um, reading your uh, – Jimmy did a, uh, a preview about the Rangers-Penguins series. You kind of ran through – 10 different numbers, and one of them was that the Penguins actually have a better save percentage this year with their goaltenders combined than the Rangers do. Obviously, from our neck of the woods, the, the Rangers side of things are pretty concerned about the defensive corpse and whether or not the Rangers defense is going to be able to handle the high-flying Pittsburgh offense, and goaltending is what we're hoping is going to be the great equalizer. So, as horrible as it to say that Flurry is injured, that's sort of the, the hope right now is that the goaltending situation might end up being an edge for the Rangers. From a, I guess, defensive standpoint, that's probably the one issue that we're all worried about. Is there anything that the Rangers boast that kind of scare you as you go into this series? Because I'm always curious about how the other fan base looks at things. Uh, I think your beat reporters had a little bit of fun with Dan Girardi and Mark Stahl probably being the pairing that's going to have to go out against Sidney Crosby. Uh, we would have fun with it, too. Instead, we're all just all terribly depressed. So I am curious if there's anything that kind of gives you pause about this series. Yeah, well, as you kind of hinted on, and you always have to lead off with this, Penguins and the Rangers have played the past two playoffs. The Rangers, of course, have won both playoff series. And difference has really been Henrik Lundqvist. The Penguins have had more shots the past two series, or at least in 2014. And it was a brick wall. You know, he's one of the best goalies in the league, and especially this time of year, he's always on his game. So you always have to start when you're going into the Rangers saying, well, we know we're in it for an uphill battle because the Rangers have one twist and he's amazing. Other than that, um, what concerns me the most is looking at it on paper, certainly like you guys were talking about, I was listening a few minutes earlier, 
about the depth of the forwards. Um, Rangers have really three very good lines, especially when you look at Kevin Hayes and Eric Stahl on the quote-unquote third line. Anytime you have third liners like that, that's a really good line. The, the top line with Zuccarello playing out of his mind and Broussard, I mean, they're always going to get their chances and create, especially on the counterattack, that's kind of done the Penguins in too. So even though the Rangers don't have the great possession metrics, it doesn't take much for a guy like Broussard, Zuccarello, Derek Stepan, etc., to you know, intercept the puck in the neutral zone, create a chance, and score in transition. And just like that, you might be out shooting them, but you're behind on the scoreboard. It's how the Rangers have gotten a pretty good portion of their wins this year. Unfortunately, the Rangers have not been one of the best possession teams in the league. In fact, they haven't even been close enough that I could sugarcoat it like that. The Rangers very simply have not been a good possession team this league, in this league. Uh, their PDO is very high. We've had a lot of debates, for, for those of you who don't know, PDO is what's commonly it's the statistic used to distinguish luck. It's on-ice shooting percentage plus on-ice save percentage. And the thought process is anything above 100 is lucky. Anything below 100 is unlucky. Anything at 100 is pretty much where you should be. And there's always this expectation that you're going to regress back to that 100 number one way or another. But the Rangers have kind of made a living the past couple of years at, at shooting at a, a 102 clip. And a big part of that has been the Henrik Lundqvist factor. There was a story that I did back in November about the, whether or not the shell was working and it kind of focused on how much higher Henrik Lundqvist save percentages against the rest of the league. And that contributes a big fact to it. So to, to your point, Jimmy, the, the Rangers have not held the puck for a lot. They, they certainly haven't been a team that is going to dominate possession and grind you down, but they have the goal scoring ability to kind of jump into a game and get out there and let Henrik Lundqvist shut the door. That hasn't happened as much this year as it has in the past. Part of that is because Dan Girardi has regressed. Mark Stahl has fallen back. Henrik Lundqvist was, uh, he had his struggles in the middle of the year. So that's the big concern for us. But you, what you said about the Rangers goes for the Penguins too. I mean, Crosby, for all the talk about how he wasn't a good player anymore and all that nonsense, was still over a point per game and I'd become a completely different player under Mike Sullivan. Chris Letang had 67 points. I didn't even realize it was that high in 71 games on defense. And then if Getty Malkin comes back, you still have Kessel, Malkin, Hornquist, story about Kunitz obviously did not have as good of a year as he could, but I don't think he's playing with Crosby as much. I might be wrong about that. But there's definitely a, a thought process that if you're looking at the New York Rangers and you think, okay, Eric Stahl, Kevin Hayes, and whoever's on that other wing is a great third line for the Rangers, well, I look up and down the Penguins lineup and I see a ton of different players that can hurt you, including Carl Haglin, who played a pretty big role in what the Rangers – and I think it was the Rangers' last loss to the Penguins, and has kind of helped change the dynamic of your team. Can you talk a little bit about what Haglin sort of provided for the Penguins? And don't mind those of us who are sobbing in the background while you do it. <laughs> yeah, I'll speak through the silent week. But um, that's really that was the move that turned the whole Penguin season around. They had three really key moments that switched the tide. The first was starting the coach in December and replacing them with a coach that kind of understands how to play the team strengths more. The second was trading Rob Scuderi, who makes Dan Girardi look like Drew Doughty, for Trevor Daly, who can actually escape the pots, he can score, he can, move, he can do everything. And then the Carl Haglund trade for David Braun, which worked out beneficially for both teams. Braun didn't fit in Pittsburgh style, he fit a lot better in Anaheim, and the reverse was definitely true where Haglund fit in like a charm in Pittsburgh. And they've really emphasized the speed. You look up and down the Penguins lineup, like you said, they had Matt Cullen scored 16 goals this year, despite being 39 years old. And he's just been great, especially the past couple of weeks. They have a couple of young kids, one of them, Connor Sheary, you'll see playing from the fourth line. He scored seven goals this year in 44 games, but he's got that foot speed where he can make some things happen. And um, But for Haglin, the main thing with him has been playing with Phil Kessel on the second line, which they were with Evgeny Malkin, and along the point with Malkin, he did not take practice today, and his initial injury timeline puts him out at least another 10 days, and that's at the front end. So I don't think we're going to see Evgeny Malkin at least until game five at the very least. It wouldn't shock me if we don't see Malkin at all. But the Penguins have been able to mitigate that. They hadn't had Malkin the last 16 games of the season, and they were able to win 14 of those games. And the way they did that was plugging Nick Benino in, who had a disappointing start of the season. But he has 16 points in his last 16 games without Malkin and playing with Haglin and Kessel. 
And that second line is really quick because it's all been about Texas speed, haggling speed. They get behind the defense, they turn defensemen, and they just really rock it down the ice and look for a pass and try to shoot and score off the rush. And that's been a huge saving grace for the Penguins because, like you mentioned, I think Crosby is the league's leading scorer ever since Christmas time. He's been great. He's been doing his stuff. Chris Letang as well in the power play especially. But really for that secondary scoring boost, the Penn's second line of Hagelin, Benino, and Kessel has really stepped up, and they've really been the difference makers and kind of established the team's identity with speed and aggression and just going forward and playing race and playing hockey these days. The speed aspect is something we've talked about a lot and as we were leading up into this uh, playoff matchup when it seemed very likely that we were going to be playing you guys in the first round and then kind of looked like maybe it was going to be Florida. But during those weeks, we had a lot of callers who called in and talked about the the speed aspect being a really big part of the playoffs and how Carl Hagelin was a big part of that identity in New York and an even bigger part of their success in that regard. And uh, look, Vigneault's system uh, offensively is not that hard to figure out. You're talking about a guy who needs his defense to move the puck up through the neutral zone and allow his speedy wingers to kind of get speed. And when it works, it's pretty deadly. The Rangers have a lot of players who can score goals, Chris Kreider, JT Miller, and uh, Jesper Foss, who probably really shouldn't be in the goal-scoring category, but just guys that are really quick who can get through the zone with possession and kind of set things up. And when it's working, it's great. But the Rangers' issues on defense haven't really allowed that to work all that much. And it's kind of been this, oh, my God, we really miss Carl Hagelin. And to see Hagelin go from out west back over to a division rival, which was less than ideal for the Rangers in the first place, is disconcerting. Because the fact of the matter is, Carl Hagelin is very much like the great band-aid. At least that's what he was in New York. When the Rangers had issues in the top six, they were able to move Hagelin up there and he fit right in. When the Rangers had to shut things down, they were able to put him in the bottom six and he fit right in. And to see the Penguins have that ability makes things a lot different because when you had that guy that you could put out there to fix your issues, now you have to defend him. Oh, and you don't have him anymore. And that's kind of become the biggest issue for the Rangers in terms of playing these speed teams is that a lot of the speed the Rangers have isn't as good defensively. I mean, Fast is really a guy who could be a Hagelin replacement. He absolutely has the defensive awareness. He's been great in the defensive zone just as fast, but his game isn't as mature as, as Hagelin's is yet, and that's okay. That comes with time, but it obviously doesn't bode well when you're going up against these guys in the playoffs. So to your point, when you're looking at Crosby on the first line and just all the weapons that he has at his disposal, and let's be honest, it's amazing to have the best player in the league. You can put anyone with them, and it completely changes the complexion of that offense. Once you're done handling them, you're on the bench, and you're like, oh, Jesus, that was really tough. Well, now you have Phil Kessel and Carl Hagelin to go up against them. That's where the Rangers' lack of depth defensively is what's really concerning with me. Because if, by some miracle, Girardi and Stahl end up not getting destroyed, then you still have to worry about everybody else uh, on the lineup. And it, it just looks like waves. They don't stop coming. We've had some debates about Phil Kessel. Obviously, there's all those narratives that followed him from Toronto that were ridiculous about him not being a good player, being fat, being out of shape, being lazy. None of that is true, but he had a slow start to the year, really seemed to pick it up towards the end. Uh, is he someone that is kind of coming on for the playoffs? He, he doesn't have the most playoff experience, but the playoff experience that he does have is, is pretty solid, and he's a guy that I, I think Rangers fans are worried about. Is, is he one of the bright spots right now for the Penguins? Yeah, he is, and um, I can see that even in his early days, like you mentioned, in Pittsburgh, a lot of Penguins fans were getting frustrated with him, too, and I could see it because his style of play is a lot different than most, especially NHL-level wingers. He doesn't forecheck all that much. I, he never hits people. He wouldn't block a shot probably to save his life. He avoids high-traffic areas, but at the same time, he's played 82 games the past six seasons, so he's durable enough. He can take the little bumps and bruises. He can maintain himself well enough to stay in the lineup. And he has played really well. He's playing at about a point-per-game rate the past 20 games as well. A lot of people have been thinking that maybe he needs to be the best player on his line, kind of like he was in Toronto, and that maybe guys like Crosby and Malkin have overshadowed him, which I don't necessarily believe in because Malkin and Haglin have always been playing since Haglin's come over with Kessel. And Malkin and Haglin have a 4.6 goals for per 60. 
say that line is just pretty much scoring an incredible amount. But then they plug in Nick Benino, and now it's 5.5 goals per 60, which doesn't seem sustainable. But right now it's just really a joy to watch. Because like you mentioned, and one reason I think that, honestly, Stahl and Girardi might hold up better than people think against the Crosby line, Crosby's playing with Kunitz and Hornquist, neither of whom are all that great of skaters, and they play a grinded-out type of style. They want the puck in the offensive zone. They'll cycle behind the net. They'll win pucks off the wall. And that, that kind of style fits what Stahl and Girardi can do, I think. It plays more to their strengths as kind of a power game. Like, if Crosby gets space, obviously he's going to explode and the open ice and be gone. But that doesn't, I mean, that happens, but more emphasis on that top line is kind of a wear you down, grind you out type of game, whereas that second line is just purely off speed with guys like Hagelin and Kessel. So I actually think from a matchup standpoint, it's a lot smarter if they're going to pair Stahl and Girardi up put them against Sid and kind of take your chances that with his wingers, they'll, like, plot it out more than burn you because they would probably definitely get burned against the speed, the pure speed that the second line plays. I'm not sure how much of the show you caught before you you jumped in, but Beth and I were talking about uh, most of the reaction from the Rangers fan base was horror that Stoll and Girardi were going to be on Crosby duty come tomorrow. And um, it puts a pit in my stomach because that definitely has not been a pairing that's given you any form of confidence this year from a Rangers standpoint. But to your point, they, and the point that I made, they don't really have options in that regard because you can't put them against Ketzel and Hagelin. They'll get roasted because of the speed. So putting them up against the best player in the league definitely does not, it shouldn't make you feel comfortable, but it's not as bad of a strategy as maybe it comes off on paper because the Rangers do need to worry about the other guys in the lineup. They have to make sure that they're taking care of what they can. And uh, there are forwards that could go out there. And Rick Nash is a great possession player, even though Matt Zuccarello and Derek Broussard have, have had their up and, ups and downs. Uh, I'm very interested to see if Derek Stefan gets those matchups with his ability in the defensive zone. I'm not sure if Vigneault is going to try to maybe get that Eric Stahl line down there too to help out uh, Stahl and Girardi just because Eric Stahl is such a good possession player this year. Uh, there's more to defense than just the two guys at the very back, but uh, traditionally Vigneault has kind of shuffled Stepan into this defensive role when the Rangers went to the Stanley Cup in 2014, and last year when they made their way to the Eastern Conference Final, Stepan seems to be matched up against the other team's best players. He's obviously quite capable of handling the role. He's had some real success with it and put up offense while doing it, but I really am curious to see what Vigneault is going to do with the pairings that are going out against Crosby, especially without the last change, because that's going to be a big factor here as well. And like I said, it might not make you comfortable, but there's really no other option at this point. You're not going to put Boyle and Shea out there, and you need Yandel and Klein to handle the speed of Kessel and Hagram. So there's no right answer, but I think if, if anything, this is probably the best of, of a bad situation. And as you're wishing that if Kenny Malkin comes back healthy as soon as possible, we're all hoping that Ryan McDonough comes back as soon as possible because he's certainly not going to fix that, everything, but he'll fix at least a little bit of the, the shuffling issue that the range is going to have defensively. I am a little curious, uh, and I, I meant to ask you this earlier, but I kind of forgot, Mike Sullivan, so our relationship with Sullivan is interesting. He was Tortorella's assistant coach at the Rangers. He followed Tortorella over to Vancouver for a year. I'm actually not sure what he was doing. I think he was down in, in Wilkes-Barre, wasn't he, for a year um, before he got – he was the assistant on the Penguins and then ended up taking over. And my right, memory, uh, He was the head coach of Wilkes-Barre for the beginning oh, of the year, okay. and then he got called up about two months in. So he wasn't even with the Penguins organization but for a couple months. And my memory of Mike Sullivan is the guy who drew up all the power play plays for the Rangers with Tortorella that never worked. And it was funny because Tortorella is just this very outgoing, I want to take up all the spotlight, I'm going to blow up the media type of guy. And Sullivan has just never been that person. and He never really got the limelight. So to see him succeed so much in Pittsburgh, I'm not going to say it's surprising. I'm certainly not going to insinuate he's not a smart hockey mind, but for what he was in New York and what he's ended up becoming in Pittsburgh is obviously a pretty big disparity from what things were. What are the biggest changes that Sullivan made to the, the Penguins to kind of help turn things around? Because some of it is sure Crosby kind of coming out of his funk a little bit, but 
the team looks just so much more dangerous since Mike Johnson got his pink slip and Sullivan really has turned things around. Yeah, along those lines, uh, Sullivan has coached 54 games with the Penguins, and over that time, Pittsburgh has 3.24 goals per game, which is the highest in the league, and it would be the highest in the league over if it was a full season. But um, really, it looked like he pretty much has been the perfect coach in the sense that he analyzed everything that went wrong with Mike Johnson, and he threw it all out the window and implemented pretty much the polar opposite. Mike Johnson coming into this year wanted to implement a 200-foot game, as he called it. He wanted his centers to be responsible because I think he was worried his defensemen would be exposed. But by doing that, it backfired because he's taken these offensively talented players like Crosby, and he was putting too much on their plate, focusing on defense, not focusing enough on let's get the puck and go the other way. And that's kind of gone hand-in-hand, like I mentioned, about the Penguins' midseason acquisitions. Like I said, they've done – they got Trevor Daly. I can't talk good enough about the job he's done. He was a first-pair guy in Dallas for many years. They traded him to Chicago this summer, and for whatever reason, he didn't fit in. Apparently, Coach Joel Crenville didn't like him very much, so he fell in a favor there. And they traded him to Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh's used him in a first- or second-pairing role, and he's done really well. He's looked like the veteran he is. And the Penguins also added in a controversial move Justin Schultz from Edmonton, who's been known as offensive first defenseman. And he isn't great, you know, without the puck. But when this team has the puck, he's been a difference maker. He's been able, especially the Penguins have sheltered him highly. They've limited his minutes a lot. They put him in position to succeed. And he has done that to his credit. He's looked good with the puck. He's made plays. So the Penguins have kind of transformed themselves over the course of this year from being a defensive-minded team, which really is foolish for the players that they have and the strengths that they have, and kind of really gone all in. They don't have what you would call a defensive defenseman. All six of their defensemen can skate. They can all move the puck. They can all make a play with their, their arms if they got to pass it. They can all skate the puck out of danger if they need to. And they all have the freedom, pretty much, to have the flexibility. If you see something, take it. You know, Don't be afraid to skate it. Don't be afraid to hold on to the puck for a second. And that, I think, is Sullivan's influence. He's kind of taken the chains off, loosened it up, loosened the mood, and the team has really responded, as I think you see in a lot of the NHL season coaching changes, when a fresh voice comes in, and almost doesn't matter what the voice is, it's just that it's so different from the way they're used to playing that everyone kind of relaxes and starts playing better. And to a man, like, every single Penguin has advanced scoring numbers, advanced possession numbers. No matter how you look at it, the Penguins have just been a completely different team from December on that they were from October to December. It, it sounds ironically very similar to the story that uh, Vigneault became after Tortorella. Tortorella was a much more defensive-minded coach, she, which is really ironic within itself because he was not that at all when he won the Stanley Cup in Tampa. Um, he was more about chop blocking, grinding it out, 20 or 200-foot game. He wanted his centers. He wanted everybody to be defensively responsible. And it made it very difficult for a younger Rangers team to kind of break out he had his issues with Chris Kreider. He loved J.T. Miller. Then he didn't love J.T. Miller. The Rangers made some organizational decisions that were probably not best in the long term because of the way that he was sort of running the ship. And when Vigneault came in, break the chains or free them from the chains is probably the best way to put it because that's exactly what it was. And Vigneault's system is sort of advanced and adapted a little bit as time has gone on here in New York. But it's certainly a similar story. Um, I just it's it's funny to hear that because you you look at what the Penguins did and to your other point uh, about hearing a different message we've talked a lot about this year because one of the common ideologies about coaching is that it's the third year is the most critical year for a coach because third the third year you've heard the same message over and over and over again for three years and if it sticks, that's great. And if it doesn't stick, obviously that's a problem when you might need a fresh voice, especially if you haven't won. And that's been a big question mark for Vigneault because this team has regressed the past three years. When he first came in, the Rangers were a Stanley Cup contender. Last year, the Rangers got a little bit worse and they were Stanley Cup contenders. And this year, I think the mindset going into the playoffs has been much different than it was in 2014. And that's an unfortunate situation. But obviously time will tell to see if any of that is... Uh, is reasonable or not. So I will put you on the spot the way that I uh, put Beth on the spot. 
just kind of get your season prediction and see what your thoughts are, series prediction, and just kind of get your thoughts on what you think is going to play out and uh, how you see things going for uh, this matchup. Okay. Well, um, the only thing that really bothers me right now is the injury status of Flurry, like I said, and it doesn't look like Malkin's coming back anytime soon, but luckily, I didn't mention this, but Oli Mata for the Pens probably will be back tomorrow almost certainly and back on first pair defense with the Tang, which is huge for the Penguins. The thing that scares me is that the Rangers this season are 33-5-5 when they score the first goal, and they're 25-3-3 when they're leading after the first period. And in the past two years, since we've seen firsthand, the Penguins have, or the Rangers have had a lead after 20 minutes in seven of the eight games that they've beaten the Penguins in the playoffs. So for me, the, the emphasis really for the Penguins should be fast starts. They can't afford to fall behind, especially going after a world-class goalie like Longfist. And I really think that the Penguins will pile it on. They'll use their speed, hopefully, to take advantage of the weaker New York defense, like you've mentioned. And even though I feel like calling a series in six games is a cop-out, like you don't have the Saints to call it in five, but due to some of the injury concerns that Pittsburgh has, I think they'll take it in six. It wouldn't shock me to see New York split the series and Pittsburgh maybe take a game, and if so, that'll really be gut check time for the Penguins because they, they'll know then they're looking at a long series, and they know they've, they've lost the Rangers twice in a row, obviously. So at that point, it'll be gut check time. I'm hoping that Pittsburgh gets fast start and just kind of piles it on and never gives them a chance, but it's playoff hockey, so it's going to be back and forth. Each team's going to have their moments where they look really strong. Each team's going to have their moments where they're just trying to hold on. So I'm calling 10-6, and six, but hoping for better. It's, I, I think you guys are probably more confident than we are, and why shouldn't you be? Because you're the hottest team in the league right now, and I include Washington in that assessment. But I, I stressed it before to Beth. I really think the Rangers are either going to get swept in this series or they're going to ride this unsustainable shooting percentage, unsustainable save percentage all the way to the Stanley Cup. I, I really think it's going to be one of two of those. Uh, obviously, the first one is far more likely. It would not shock me at all if, if the Rangers got bounced out pretty easily. It also wouldn't shock me if the Rangers won because they've, they've won a lot of games that way. Uh, I think the injury situation, the flurry situation, definitely levels the playing field a little bit. And, uh, I mean, it, it makes me happy that you guys are still thinking you need to have a lead uh, early on to kind of run things around. But this Rangers team, even with a healthy defense, has blown more leads than I can ever remember. Uh, it became, I think the Rangers are the best team in the league at, in terms of winning percentage when they're leading after two periods. And in the final half of the year, I think they lost like five or six games where they had only lost one game the past four years, I want to say. So I think the dynamic has changed a little bit. I think it's because of some of that regression, but I really do hope that uh, that's something that kind of comes out. I, if I had to take my pick optimistically, I, if the Rangers are going to win, they're going to win this series in seven. But uh, like you said, it would not shock me at all, really, for the Penguins to just kind of come out and dominate and move forward. And I, even I among the, those lines, me, go ahead. these are two 100-point teams over the season. So, I mean – it kind of stinks with the NHL's new playoff alignment that these are two definitely of the better teams, I would say. If you had to rank the teams right now, one through eight in the East, I don't think you would come up with a Pittsburgh-New York first-round matchup because I think these teams are probably both at least two of you know the top five or six teams in the, in the conference right now. So I don't think it's going to be easy by any means, like you said. I, and that's the beauty of playoff hockey. It could go either way, like – you never know what's going to happen. I guess that's why we watch, huh? Yeah, from a curiosity standpoint, I asked this uh, in the beginning of the show. I am curious what you guys think. The way that the playoffs are aligned right now, it kind of forces these divisional matchups over and over and over again. But with the way that the Metropolitan Division has played out, but the Rangers have played you guys in Washington the past two years. We're playing the Penguins for the third year in a row. Um, if either of us, well, if the Rangers win, they're going to play the Capitals for the third year in a row. Does it get a little boring to go back up against the Rangers again? Would, would you like to see a fresh face there just from a pure, I understand the division rival and, and the hatred and, and obviously makes for great hockey, but uh, I was really hoping to see another team other than the Penguins, not only because you guys are, are such a hot team right now, but just because well, you've seen you already. We've done two playoff series like this. We've done this dance. Uh, is that the same kind of feeling over there? 
Yeah, I think that's the way the fans feel, but I think this is exactly what the league wants. Because if you look at it from big picture, you got Pittsburgh, New York, so you got Crosby against Longquist in the biggest market, so they're thrilled about that. Then you got Pittsburgh, uh, you got Washington against Philly, two rivals, and then the winners from each of those series are going to face each other. So you're either going to get New York, Washington, New York, Philly, Pittsburgh, Philly, Pittsburgh, Washington, and either way, it's just win, win, win for the league. Any of those matchups are really good. Whereas, you know, if it was the old style, it might be like you're playing the Panthers next round and there's not a lot of buzz around that, you know. So I can see why the league likes it, but at the same time, I'm with you. It's just like, oh, man, we got to play the Rangers again. You know, we've, we've done this. If we beat them, it's just another, like, like big rival team. And you don't want to like, go down to those guys. It's just, it kind of gets to the point of the fans. It's just like, this is too stressful. And this is like, you're just seeing the same teams again, but... I think it's the most successful way for the league to build it because it's going to build the most interest in this drama. And to your point, from a television standpoint, I actually I work in uh, TV sales, selling commercial airspace for broadcast TV. I used to sell Pittsburgh, actually, and I would sell the Penguins preseason games on WPCW in Pittsburgh. And the, from oh, a nice. market standpoint, there were – you're talking about New York, which is the number one market in the country. I, Washington, D.C., I should know. I don't. I believe it's a top-ten market. Uh, Philadelphia is the number four market in the country. Pittsburgh is the 23rd market in the country. You're talking about some of the bigger ad revenue generating markets uh, around. And it's sort of not those non-traditional markets that you're going to get out West. Obviously there's a bunch of LA teams, but when you look at maybe the way some of those matchups are going to come out, sometimes it gets a little hairy, especially if Phoenix is in the mix. And again, you're talking about some of the bigger markets in the country, but there really is no losing formula for NBC and the people who are going to be actually running these, these games as you get into the second and third rounds of the playoffs because your local carriers are carrying the first round. So that probably is by design. I mean, you're going to make your money at the top anyway, so I'm sure the NHL is thrilled with the way that the Metro played out because there is no losing. No matter what it turns into, there's going to be a, a big matchup there. And, hey, listen, they're going to do what's going to make them the most money. Sports is a business, so... Um, it is what it is, but I, I really want to thank you for coming on, Jimmy. I really do appreciate it. You can, uh, visit those guys over at pensburg.com. If you do, please be nice because they will tell me if you're mean. And I feel like we do this every year. People get banned over at Blue Shirt Panther because they're mean at other websites. There is, uh, there's no need for that, but actually you guys are for considered. We've seen you every year the past couple of years. It, it's a dialogue on both sides. It's usually pretty good. So you can catch them out there. Do you have a Twitter handle? I was looking for it before. I couldn't find it. Is it just the Pensburg one? Yeah, we can just do at Pensburg to follow us, and that would be great. Uh, so you could do that. You could find me at blueshirtbanter.com. Uh, Mike is uh, going to come back next time. He just wasn't feeling good today. Jim, thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, best of luck. I guess this is the last time that we can be cordial. And uh, I – don't know when the next – I think the next episode is going to be on a Tuesday. I don't think there's a playoff game on a Tuesday. Maybe there is. A, there's not. Or I think there is, actually. So we may be pushing to Wednesday. I'm not sure. But I'll release the schedule for the next podcast before we go out. Again, that was Jimmy Rixner over at Pensburg.com. Thank you guys for listening. We will see you next week. Good night. <laughs>